Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. How do our brains deal with overwhelming amounts of information and make decisions about how to prioritise it? If you're searching a room, looking maybe for a hidden spot or something that you've lost, what does your brain do when you do this task? And how does someone observing you do this task respond as well? Plus, the way our eyes process and deal with all that extra information coming in and choose the right response. Over the last year, we've all become much more aware of our surroundings, whether it be the small room that we're holed up in, or maybe the outdoor spaces we go for our brief moments of exercise, or encountering other people across the world. We now are probably much more attuned to the movements and motions of other people. Now, when you think about what your brain is doing at this instance, it's actually doing something quite complicated. If you were to train a robot to figure out its surroundings, people often use different algorithms and techniques to do so, taking in statistical data points and building a model of the world. Techniques like SLAM are one of those things, or any localization algorithm. But your brain is doing something similarly. And when it does this, it actually tries to not only build a map of the place, but navigates it. Now, this is used not just for ourselves, our own purposes of navigation, but it can be also used by a brand to just track the motions of other people in a space. Now, this research has just been published in the journal Nature, and lead author on the paper was Assistant Professor Nathia Suthana, who worked with a team of researchers at UCLA, Jane and Terry Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behaviour. Now, these researchers are building on long-explored areas of neuroscience. For example, we know that epilepsy patients who have had surgically implanted with electrodes to help control their seizures, the electrodes reside in the medial temporal lobe, the brain center linked to memory, and we believe also suspected to regulating navigation, much like a GPS device. And low-frequency brainwaves by the neurons in that spot, when you observe it at least in rodents, help them keep track of a space as they navigate a new place. Now, obviously, you would like to do the same test in humans to see if they navigate and build a map like GPS in their head of a certain space as they navigate it for the first time. The problem is electrodes in people's heads, easy to do in rats, less easy to do with people. So that's where the National Institutes of Health Brain Initiative came in. With that, they invented a special backpack that contained a computer that wirelessly connects to brain electrodes. This meant that the research subjects could move around and actually explore a space, not sit strapped down into an MRI or another type of imaging or studying device. That means much more mobile, and now the researchers could actually get actual data of somebody navigating an unfamiliar space for the first time. Now, the whole point of putting on a backpack was to get people to explore a room. And that's exactly what the patients did in this case. Now, each patient wore the backpack with the monitoring devices in it and was asked to explore an empty room, find a hidden spot in the room, and remember it for future searches. Now, while they walked, the backpack actually sat there tracking not only their brain waves, but their eye movements and paths through the room in real time. So really building a huge mountain, a backpack full of data that they could use to analyze exactly the thinking process, see the thinking process reflected in the brain, and also track how people were scanning the and surveying the activity as well through motion and eye movement. Now, as the participants searched the room, their brains 
waves flowed in a pretty distinctive pattern, one that could be picked up as a common element across different people. So each person's brain had mapped out the walls and the boundaries. Now, what was interesting about this, this pattern for mapping out the walls and the boundaries of the room, is that well, when people sat in the corner of the room and watched somebody else do the same exercise, find the hidden spot in the room wearing the backpack, when they were in this observer mode rather than the active participant mode, the patient's brainwaves also followed a similar pattern. So even though they were observing someone else looking for the hidden spot, their brain was recalling the same patterns and producing the same patterns about assessing the room as it was when they're actually doing the search. Rather than just purely be about mapping the boundaries, what those brainwaves are also doing is tracking the location of a person in a room. So not just the shape of the walls and the boundary locations, but also the shape of a person in those boundary locations. So for example, if you were walking through a room trying to find a secret spot, it looks kind of similar to what somebody else would do. And that's what your brain is also realizing and noting. And what was interesting is there was different brainwave patterns, stronger or weaker patterns, depending on when someone was actively searching for the hidden spot or witnessed another person approaching the hidden spot than when they were just simply left on their own to explore the room with no goal in mind. And what that means is that the brainwave patterns for searching or actively looking, being told to investigate something, are different than just exploration type of patterns. And this region of the brain is strongly activated when the search mode was underway. Now, while you might be searching out for a bargain at the shops, this is an interesting study to help you understand what's going on inside your brains, but it doesn't quite tell us about how our brains handle complex situations with lots of other people surrounding it. But now that there is a backpack that they can use to monitor and record signals from a person pretty easily, well, now they can actually start to do some of these more distributed studies by being able to see what's happening in the brain in real time as someone explores a situation, whether it be walking through a party or a crowd or doing another type of activity that involves mapping an area. This enables researchers to get fine details about what the brain is doing rather than having somebody strapped down inside an MRI or perhaps with electrode caps on their heads, not really able to move freely. This means that neuroscientists can now look at much more interesting topics and more complicated research setups for their experiments. Some great work published in the journal Nature from UCLA's School of Medicine and Institute for Neuroscience. We talked a little bit about what your brain is doing when it's observing a new space. But what's happening with the signals from your eyes? Well, the retinal ganglion cells, RGCs, they're the bottleneck. All information from your retinas have to pass through them. And they act as sort of the gateway to processing of these signals. Now, what's really interesting is if you can study these particular type of neurons, well, then you sort of unlock all of the information for how your brain is going to process and deal with images. But the problem is it's incredibly complicated. That's where researchers from Max Planck Institute of Neurobiology, University of California, Berkeley, and Harvard University have built what they call a molecular catalog that describes all the different types and flavors of the retinal ganglion cells that you can get. And this way you can actually 
look at the individual systems and figure out what each of their behaviors functions are. That's great because it means that we can actually start to unlock how our eyes turn this signal of light and things we see around us into information that can be processed by our brain. Let's take an example. Now, often our brains process signals for seeing something like light. Now, a moth or perhaps another type of creature would see light, maybe zebrafish as a good example. They can see light and they might swim or fly towards it, be drawn to the flame. Now, that type of response that is triggered inside these creatures can be similar to the same response that they see when they identify a prey. So you see food, you swim towards it. You see light, you swim towards it. Now, a moth or a zebrafish, they don't think light is food. The signals are actually entirely different, but they are undertaking the same response. So how does the light coming in be treated differently to the sequence of a food, for example? Now, if you showed a predator to one of these creatures, well, they would then flee. That's good because, you know, if they thought it was light or they thought it was food, they would, they would have some pretty dire consequences. So how does the brain process all these different visual stimulus and make sure that that visual stimulus gets tied to the correct response? On a base level, your brain has to do this really, really quickly. You don't have time to run a complicated image processing algorithm inside your brain to figure out and identify what that shape means. Sometimes it's really instinctive and very simple. And optical signals are generated by photons that bombard the retina and the eye all the time. They're just continually coming in. So then the neurons in the retina, they have to collect and process all of this information. And to do so, they have to do it really quickly because otherwise the backlog would be immense. You wouldn't get through all that information just continually coming in. So how does it make sense of this barrage of light hitting your eye? Well, it has to focus on important details. It has to eliminate things that aren't important, that are noise, that it can disregard, or maybe things that it thinks are important but will need a lot of processing, figuring out. It can leave those for later. but can't do that detailed processing for everything. So the retina focuses on important details. One of the couple of questions are, is there contrast or color? Are there small or large objects? Is, is something moving? Once it gets through all these decision points, and filters out, then the retinal ganglion cells send that data to the brain, where the brain can make the decision about which type of behavior it wants to undertake. Maybe it wants to investigate or process that further, take a closer look. Well, all these things get decided by the brain, but the retinal ganglion cell is the one doing all that filtering and processing in the first place. Without them, well, the brain wouldn't know what to do. It wouldn't have that information sorted. It would just be bombarded with photon information. So researchers led by Yvonne Kolsch from Herbig Bayer's laboratory and collaborating with groups from Harvard University led by Joshua Sainz and UC Berkeley from Karthik Seka, they tried to map all of the different transcriptomes, the patterns of all the active genes in all of the known variants of the RGCs. And so they decided to give each cell its own unique molecular fingerprint based on what they found inside it from the sequencing. Now, what they identified was over 30,000 different RGCs and 32 different RGC types based on similarities. So you know, 30,000 30, unique RGCs, but then they could group those into some 32 different broader types. And from that, you can build a neuronal cell type catalog. Now, sometimes so certain RGC types would only have some genes active. Now, with the help of gene editing and CRISPR, they could actually 
eliminate out and take out certain types of those genes. And that enables you to then isolate the function of that specific RGC type because you can remove what it's supposed to be doing and see what happens to the subject without that. And that's what they did with transparent zebrafish. That's where we talked about zebrafish earlier before. These are often used in labs because they're a quick breeding research subject where you can do quick gene editing, a bit like Drosophila fruit flies. And the other great thing about zebrafish is that you can get them in a transparent form. And if you use fluorescently labeled RGC types, you can actually observe which regions of their brains are firing at certain times. So these are all pretty handy things. And one of the reasons why transparent zebrafish are really often used. Now, so they took some zebrafish larvae and they exposed them to various stimuli, investigated which part of the active cell types, these RGC types, started to turn on. For example, they were able to find one RGC type that reacted to light, but not to the simulation of an attacking predator. So they had an RGC type specifically developed to process light signals and trigger the correct response. But that RGC type didn't care about predators or anything else. It only cared about light. Now, why would the fish do this? Well, fish larvae generally prefer a bright environment because they can easily perceive their surroundings and more easily find food. So when they switched off that cell type, turned off their ability to sense light, well, they could see that th that larva could no longer identify or respond correctly to approaching light. That was a big deal. They'd isolated the RGC type for detecting light in, in these zebrafish. And what they've shown with this huge catalogue of different RGC types is how your eyes and the neurons in your eyes, these RGCs, are actually making the decisions about how to process signal information coming in, how to deal with the mesmerizing barrage of light that you get on your eyes and pick what it might be and how to process that signal in the most efficient manner and send that information off to your brain to handle and choose the correct response. In the case of the example here with zebrafish, they were able to isolate and identify exactly the genes and the RGC type in their little fish eyes that help them identify light, which is very important for these young fish to find food and a safe environment. And they were able to turn that on and off effectively and understand exactly the role of that RGC type and how it governs the behavior. Now, there probably would be more highly specialized neuronal circuits in the brain that translate to all kinds of diverse stimuli, high contrast, identification of patterns, moving objects. They all exist. Harder to isolate and test, but certainly there. And it shows the great work your eye is doing to deal with all of that stream of continual information coming in through your eyes, and figuring out how to best process and prioritize them and send them up to your brain. Now, most of the time, it's actually redecided what it thinks it is, and then the brain can then send off the trigger for action. And this is some great research that's been published in the journal Neuron, collaboration research from the Germany and the United States with lead author Yvonne Kolsch. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. We found out about the role of RGCs and how they help your eyes prioritise information before it sends it on to the brain to respond, and what your brain does when it's searching for an object in a room. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.